Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Yo, yo. What's up, L? This is Brian Terry giving you a call from the Bay, Oakland. Really looking forward to coming out to the show, chopping it up with you. We're going to cover everything. We're going to talk about the foundations down in the South. We're going to talk about moving to the Bay. We're going to talk about my residency at the Museum of the African Diaspora. Looking forward to it. Get at me. Today, Bryant Terry is stepping into the walk-in with me. Bryant has really expanded my thinking about what vegan and plant-based cooking can be. He's written five plant-based cookbooks and won a James Beard Award. And his commitment to sustainable food culture doesn't stop with cookbooks. He also gives back. In 2002, he started Be Healthy. It stands for Build Healthy Eating and Lifestyles to Help Youth. The goal is to educate New York City youth about sustainable food systems. So he's empowering the next generation of thoughtful eaters. In addition to all that, Bryant is also the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora. It's time to get the full story. Let's step into the walk-in. Also, This conversation took place remotely, so please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. All right, Brian, we're going to roll on. All right. Roll roll on. Okay. That's what came in my head after I said it. You know I'm from Detroit. Every Motown. I have a Motown song for every single solitary action in life. Every single one. I feel that. It's a skill. Brian Terry, thank you for stepping into the walk-in with me. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we get to connect in this way. It's been, I don't know when the last time we even connected. So, you know, I'm glad to be here. The honest response to that is I don't think that we've ever actually had a chance to have a real one-on-one connection. We're often in the same room at the same time. We know all the same people. We kind of work in the same field of culinary media, but I think this is our real first, you know, like our real first chat. And it doesn't even feel brand new. It doesn't even feel brand new. I know. Yes, it feels very organic and new. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, that says a lot about intention. I think 
we always intend to reach out to each other. And it's really, it's considered difficult to do in normal settings, right? But I think that COVID has really helped us really realize that things are a little bit more touchable. Things are more at reach than we have probably played into or accepted. We're really not that distant. Yeah. It's so it's really easy to just reach out and touch somebody's hand and make this world a better I place. I totally agree. That's my other Motown. Yeah. Are you guys, look, I, look, I have to say, I am there with you because I feel like I constantly have like a soundtrack running in my <laughs> mind for every situation in my life. I'm like, I live and breathe hip hop. And we started our um, oldest daughter on hip hop beat production tutoring maybe like a month ago. And I can't even tell you how happy it makes me to be able to just live vicariously through her, <laughs> seeing her like chopping up beats. And, you know, with everything happening with staying in place and COVID, sure. one of the things, because a lot of their summer camps got canceled. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I committed to teaching both my daughters this summer, just like what would they probably not learn in school, at least not at this age, yeah. is the arc of Black music. And mm-hmm. so... We've been like watching a lot of documentaries, listening to a lot of music. Yeah. And just, you know, from like field hollers up until whatever contemporary music. And and there's been a lot of emphasis on hip hop. We've been watching this show on Netflix, Hip Hop Evolution. I love it. Which is this uh it's in that show amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, well, hip hop. Hip hop. <laughs> eat a love of my life. Yeah. Like next to food. Seriously, it is definitely love of my life. It's the one thing that can completely flip my mood. If you put on the right song from the right era, it's over. I mean, it's over. Why are you tripping? L. Simone is kind of like the perfect MC or DJ or Listen. producer or something. Brian, don't get me hype up here. Don't make me freestyle on this podcast microphone, this Yeti mic. Okay. They are not ready for out. that. Wait, you get out like that? <laughs> they are not ready. You freestyle like that for real? I'll do it. I will step it. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you about my I mean, you ain't gotta you gotta flex, but <laughs> Let me, I'm gonna just tell you about my teenage self. I used to sneak out of the house on Friday nights to go to St. Andrews where Eminem used to perform before he was famous, right? Oh yeah. I have like one good childhood guy friend. We're still best friends to this day. If he was in town, I could go anywhere he would go. But never mm. should have been out on a Friday night. But I would sneak out with him. We would go to St. Andrews. There'd be all kind of little ciphers happening. And I would just, like, pop into a little cipher. One time, I stepped into a cipher where Bahamadia was, and she ripped my what? ass to shreds. <laughs> but, I mean, it's Bahamadia, and I was, like, 15, so it doesn't really count, no you doubt. know. But, oh, yeah, I'll step into a cipher on you real quick now. I got bars. I got bars. Well, I believe that. <laughs> Do you know that my motto is that I'm a weekday vegan weekend carnivore? I did not know that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up seven-day Adventist, and we grew up eating very little meat, right? We grew up eating lots of vegetarian food, which we learned later down the line was not the healthiest thing to be eating. Like, it's kind of like packed with sodium. All of it was in a can with some type of... um, filmy stuff in it to preserve it, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we grew up with these temperance laws that include some very strict eating practices. Yeah. And so... My grandmother always made, like, fried chicken was always, like, my meat exception. But as a kid, I remember not really, if I didn't have it, it was not a bother for me. And my grandfather, Mm -hmm. even though my grandparents were divorced for well over 20 years by the time I was even brought into the world, 
Mm-hmm. My grandfather always cultivated a garden in the back of my grandmother's house. So mm. he would come home from the plant. He worked at Ford. He would come to her house first. He would pull all the vegetation from the garden, put it in the window seal, and he would go home. And when my grandmother would come home, she would in turn take said vegetables from the windowsill and commence to cook them for dinner. So that was the connection. Mm. He grew things that he liked and he would take some of that, but everything else was for us, right? And so it was always go to the backyard and get some cabbage, you know, go to the backyard and get some tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And that's how I grew up, having fresh food in the back of my house. I grew up in Detroit, which I consider knowing now what I didn't know then was that I basically grew up in a black suburb, right? Mm -hmm. We had a fresh Mm -hmm. fruit market around the corner, fresh things accessible. So that was kind of my life. And that carried me over into my adulthood right now. Right. So like now I'm like, do I need meat Mm. most of the time? No. So I can be weekday vegan. I'm good with that. Mm. I have a lot of help from your cookbooks, by the way, because the one thing I never was taught was how to make the food (laughs) I grew up on veganized. So my first introduction to this idea of eating a diet that had very few animal products or if any came from Seven Day Adventist. And these were folks in our community who had talked me about this concept Mm -hmm. and they're black folks and you know it's always important for me to remind people because i think so often when we imagine vegan vegetarian plant-based whatever however way you want to describe this way of eating healthfully so often people imagine it as one or two things like i guess the older image is like upper middle class white suburbanites who would maintain these practices and now More recently, I think people think about the kind of like hipsters in the gentrified urban Mm -hmm. centers in the U.S., right? And I always remind people that there is a thread of Black-led both food and health activism throughout the 20th century. And I think about some of the theological manifestations of that, you know, like Seven Day Adventists or looking Mm -hmm. at like the Nation of Islam with the the Honorable Elijah, talking about Detroit, with, you know, the Honorable Elijah's health ministry. I mean, he wrote two books, How to Eat to Live, really instructing Black folks on ways that they need to really reconsider what they're putting in their bodies and how it impacts their lives in multiple ways. And we can move from there to like the Black Panthers. We can talk about Dick Gregory. We talk about Kara's One and different hip hop artists. So part of my mission has been like illuminating this very powerful, uh, you know, just this, this whole adage of standing on the, yes. the shoulders of ancestors. And so I recognize that the work that I'm doing is standing on the shoulders of all these Black folks before me, mm-hmm. and I'm not doing anything new. This is just me helping helping us remember these practices. But also, my parents live in Huntsville. Oh, Alabama. wow. That's the epicenter of Seven Day Adventures. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. So, one of the first times that I actually encountered a Black owned health food store mm-hmm. was in Huntsville mm-hmm. because they moved there when I was like older, like when I graduated college. And so, it's a new city for me, but just kind of exploring it, I was like, oh, this is a Black owned health food store. And then I later found out that the owners were Seven Day Adventists and um, just really good folks and committed to the community. And they did have a lot of the fake yes. products and the can stuff. Like that. I keep a couple of them here at the house just to keep me grounded, right? Just so I can remember my roots. But um, but that's how I grew up. I want you to tell me about how you grew up. This is a part of the podcast that we call FIFO. Do you know what FIFO means? It means first in, first out. FIFO, first in, first out.
And so that's the rule of the walk-in. When new food comes into the restaurant or kitchen, it goes to the back. So the old food comes to the front. So we're using the old things first, right? And so that's how we're going to start talking Mm -hmm. about your life. We're going to talk about young you and old you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The old man, busy (laughs) bee. Right, right. So just tell me about a little bit about how you grew up. Tell me how you got to where you are today. I'm from the South. I grew up in Memphis. Memphis, Tennessee, rooted and raised me. And my family actually has roots in rural South. Okay. So we own farms in rural Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas. And unfortunately, there's this history of Black land being stolen from us, whether taken violently by white races, white supremacists, or, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the machinations of the USDA, where over the 20th century, they systematically took a lot of um, land that was owned by Black people. And so... Because my grandparents had that foundation and grounding in the rural South, when they moved to the city, Mm -hmm. they brought with them the agrarian knowledge, many of those traditions. And for them, they were just survival traditions. You know, they they never talked about their garden or cooking meals from scratch or canning and pickling and preserving being anything special because these were the ways that they survived. They just did it. It was economic. They just did Mm -hmm. it. You know, it was like. And when I think about like a thriving local food system, this term we like to throw around a lot, I reflect on my grandparents' neighborhood because it wasn't just them. Like my paternal grandfather, literally every bit of available space in his backyard was being used to grow food, similar to what you described with your grandfather Mm -hmm. or your grandmother and your grandfather supporting that garden. And he had hogs back there. He had Mm. chickens back there. He was growing muscadine grapes and apples and had walnut tree and like collards for days. And I won't romanticize it because I did like loathe being a part of all that because it was just work. You know, it's like you need to come (laughs) back Somebody had to pick all those greens. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So this whole idea of local thriving food systems, once again, I think in the popular imagination, these are often imagined as like white spaces. And I just Mm -hmm. reflect on whenever I'm ruminating on my own childhood and I think about my my grandparents' neighborhood, both of them, in fact, this is my paternal grandparents and my maternal grandparents who both lived Mm. in South Memphis, this neighborhood adjacent to downtown Memphis, Tennessee, they, yes, sure, my grandfather, he was growing all this food, but then the neighbor next door had like a mini orchard where they were like growing nectarines and pears and peaches. And then somebody else might've just had tomatoes on their front porch in pots and someone else might've, you know, had like a little box, but everyone, it feels like almost everyone in the neighborhood was somehow producing a little bit of food and they were sharing it with each other because what my grandfather had in his backyard was so much more that he and my grandmother and even his children who he gave a lot of weight to. Yes. Yeah. So they shared the bounty, they bartered, they traded, you know, when I go back to that neighborhood now, it's a shell of itself. I mean, Mm. you don't see any fruit trees, you don't see any gardens. And statistically that neighborhood has some of the highest rates of preventable diet-related illnesses, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. I'm not going to reduce it to just, you know, people growing food in their neighborhood. I know there are many complicated reasons that those outcomes exist in that neighborhood, but I do feel that that missing piece could be a catalyst to transforming a lot that's going on. Sure. If you dismantle the collective, a lot of things fall apart. Like, Mm -hmm. that's a given. That's a given. Yeah. 
Okay, so you are the child of these two wonderful people who grew up and met each other in Memphis. Is that what I'm hearing? My parents met in high school. My mom was in 10th grade. My dad was in ninth, and they met at a dance. And so (laughs) they went to, you know, it was like, you know, one of the weekly dances that um, all the Black kids would go to. They met, they hit it off, and they've been together since. I just remind people what I'm doing. While Mm -hmm. it may, the package may seem like it's something new and vegan, soul food. I mean, I'm clear that they're my blood ancestors that I'm standing on the shoulders of. They're these historical heroes and heroines and spiritual ancestors that I stand on the shoulders on. So I always need to give um, respect and elevate them. Absolutely. Big up to the ancestors, always, every Mm -hmm. day. And all, every day and tomorrow. Ashe. And Ashe. And, th- you know, with all that said, though, let's really hone in on it. You have really been a catalyst for reintroducing vegan eating as it relates to the Black palate. I mean, there are lots of ways to be a vegan plant-based. You know, there's lots of ways. You can execute it in the vein of Italian or Mm -hmm. a lot of the countries in the mother continent eat this way normally. Uh, The Ethiopian retrain, the East African diet is primarily vegetarian, but the African-American black palate, that's all you, brother. That's all you. You (laughs) brought that to us in a collective way that is not only just something that we will enjoy on the palette, but aesthetically, like these books are beautiful. We see our hands, we see our skin, we see mm-hmm. kitchens that look like ours. That in totality is an experience that is rare for us. Yep. Well, I'll say what I grew up eating was what I think many people would describe as a vegetable-centered whole mm-hmm. food diet. Yes, we did have animal products in our diet and the food that we ate, you know, it certainly wasn't vegetarian or vegan by any means, but we ate a lot of vegetables because they were abundant and we were getting them straight from the garden. I always say our food was as local as our backyard garden. It was mostly in season, except for what we canned, pickled and preserved and froze. And we literally would go out and harvest stuff right before the meal. Mm -hmm. And so I think I needed to say that because there's this part of me as an educator, as an activist, who certainly is invested in people knowing about the major problems of our industrialized food system, who wants people to be more aware of the relationship that we have to the natural world, including animals, and how we can sometimes have very harmful actions because of our consumer habits and consumption patterns that really don't honor these other living beings. But Mm -hmm. then there's a part of me that understands that diet is so complex and Mm -hmm. there is no one panacea, some perfect diet and understanding the importance of thinking about like culture and history and geography and how that informs the way that people eat. And I'm mostly invested in people just eating real food, you Mm -hmm. know, eating lots of fruits and vegetables and grains and legumes. Because guess what? You can have a vegan diet that's totally crappy, Mm -hmm. you know, just because you're not eating meat doesn't necessarily mean you're eating well. well. And so I think there's a difference between um, and we could unpack veganism and the ethical reasons, the environmental, all the reasons why one might embrace that diet. But when talking about or I shouldn't even say that diet, but the kind of like vegan ethos of living, mm-hmm. because I think veganism is much more than what you're eating. But with the plant-based diet, it's really my goal just to get people eating real food again, because I think the standard American diet has been what the major culprit in the decline in the health among many Americans. Sure. We know that African-Americans and 
other uh, communities of color, historically marginalized communities are suffering from some of the worst outcomes. Yeah. But just in general, Americans just have horrible health outcomes. For this to be the quote unquote greatest nation in the world <laughs> and like such a, a wealthy industrialized nation, like why are we so sick and dying? And I, I think we yeah. know why. We know why. Yeah. yeah. Just, <laughs> we know. So, we know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you went to culinary school and you went yeah. to a culinary school that is centered on healthy eating. Big up to the Natural Gourmet Institute. Hello, big up. (laughs) Did you know going into that school, were you already set on this mission of educating people or was this just already part of your personal ethos? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, before we talk about culinary school, we should take a step back and talk about graduate school because I moved to New York City because I was in a doctoral program in history at NYU. Mm. And there was some research I was doing about social movements in the mid 20th century that led me to really examining a lot of the work of the Black Panthers in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they were more than the way that the popular media often kind of reductively presents them as just these crazy gun-toting militants that's spewing a lot of uh, rhetoric. But I didn't know the extent to which they had these powerful programs and communities. So they had over 60 survival programs that were aimed at meeting the basic needs of people living in communities. And let me say this, their official name when they were founded by Hugh P. Newton and Bobby Seale was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. For self, yes. And it's important to note that because the reason that they were founded is that they were responding to police violence mm-hmm. in Black communities. Right. So the same thing that have kind of sparked the most recent manifestation of the anti-racist movement of Black Lives Matter, all that this was happening in the late 60s, and that's what they were responding to. And from that, they were policing the police. Yes. They would literally go around following them and ensure that they weren't violating the rights of Black citizens and killing yeah. them. And so from that, they started doing all this programming that met other needs in the community. And they had some that addressed this intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism yes. and how they intersected. And they had grocery giveaways which is another, I mean, you think about the food insecurity and economic uncertainty that a lot of people are facing now. And a lot of people are going to the food banks. I see lines throughout the Bay Area of people waiting to have emergency food needs yeah. met. So it's just interesting just to see that, like, as much as we like to think we've gotten so far, we're still dealing with the same problems yeah. that we were in the middle of last century. But then there was a free breakfast for children mm-hmm. program. And I think, you know, for me and a lot of food justice activists, that program was really a major inspiration in in the ways in which we think about contributing to a larger social movement or liberation movement for Black folks is how can we ensure that people have access to healthy, safe, fresh, culturally appropriate, nutritious food. And so what struck me is I recognize that the problems that they were addressing back then were the same things that we were dealing with now. I mean, I literally, I talk about this story often because it was so, it was just such a watershed moment being on the subway at seven o'clock in the morning on the way to campus and then looking and seeing these children, these kids eating candy bars and eating red hot chips. Eating chips chips for breakfast. Right, and sodas and energy drinks and sugary fruit juices. And so it hit me, this whole idea that Raj Patel talks about, like this stuffed and starved. I was like, you know, these young people, they're eating what Michael Pollan calls it, edible food-like substances, but it's not real food. And that's what they were relying on as their fuel throughout the day. And I just, at that moment, I was like, I want to do something. Mm -hmm. I want to make an intervention that helps young people 
transform their relationship with food. Yeah. And I was very clear in the beginning that it wasn't just about personal responsibility. Well, if you go and you need to be eating more carrots, it's like, no, why are they so often driven to eat these type of mm-hmm. foods? Well, it's because in many of their communities, there was very little access to good yeah. food, but then there was a plethora of options for them to get a lot of process and package and fast food. So I went to culinary school with the express purpose of founding an organization that would address these issues and that would really train a new generation of youth food activists. And I just want to reflect back on one of the most important things that I learned in grad school that helped me view this work of food activism in a different way. And my advisor is a scholar, one of the most brilliant scholars alive today, Robin D.G. Kelly. He's a historian. And his second book was called Race Rebels. And in the book, he talks about this history uh, in the the 20th century of kind of like the informal ways that Black folks were doing organizing outside of like formal labor um, unions. And he talks about things like, you know, how they resisted white supremacy and capitalism in the workspace by doing things like breaking tools, Mm. sabotage, quitting on the spot, leaving early. And so basically he argues that these kind of everyday acts of resistance are just as important as like organized labor work. And what I realized is that these seemingly apolitical acts like gardening, like cooking, like building community around the table in an industrialized food system such as ours that's largely controlled by a handful of multinational food corporations. Those are are. highly political acts. Dare I say radical. And so that was one of the reasons that I I thought that cooking could be such a powerful Mm -hmm. entryway into the conversation with young people, especially because they're living in like these historically neglected neighborhoods where And I always say that lack of access to healthful, fresh, affordable food is just one indicator of material deprivation. Because usually in these same neighborhoods, they have like underfunded, segregated public schools, Mm -hmm. very few jobs that pay a living wage, crumbling infrastructure, environmental racism and pollution. And so the food access piece is just one of many things that need to be addressed. But I found that when you talk, when you start with the politics, that often turns people off. And so why not turn, start with something that we all connect with and love and can like come together around, which is actual food. The Volrack Company has been making industrial cooking gear for 145 years, and they brought that long history to the table when they decided to launch Nuku, their line of cookware and bakeware for home chefs. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products. With Nuku, it really gives them the confidence to explore their passion and focus on the joy that drives them to the kitchen. Well, what we like to say is Nuku stands out by not standing in the way. Don't let subpar cookware stand in your way. Nuku Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for 35% savings off their stockpots. That's nucu.com promo code KITCHEN. I'm a food stylist by trade which means that aesthetics are very important to me. Whether it's food or home decor, I want things that are beautiful, well-made, and tell a story. That's why Room & Board is so great. They focus on furniture and home decor that is modern, well-made, and trend-proof. 
And they work with family-owned businesses across the country to source the absolute best in American craftsmanship. And get this, more than 90% of their products are manufactured in America. Even better, they offer free design services over the phone, through video conference, or in their stores. Their experts can help with any project, big or small, from picking a pillow to creating a 3D rendering of your space. Go to roomandboard.com to learn more. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beer, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I'd say, well, I just got 120th of a customer. I've only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. Let's talk about the juxtaposition of the healthy food that comes into neighborhoods as a result of gentrification and then next to our feelings about gentrification. Like, right, isn't it the kind of thing, like it would just blow my mind and just piss me off to watch. I lived in two, well, I worked in Harlem in the early 2000s and I watched Harlem get gentrified. And then I watched Bed-Stuy get gentrified while I was living there. And I wanted to Mm -hmm. be angry about it. And I am angry about it. But I also do want this little organic market on the corner of the block (laughs) so that the people can get the food right yeah it's such a tug it's a tug and pull on the inside of my heart because like we should have those things should they come as a result of gentrification no but like am i wrong for also wanting to take full advantage of the things that gentrification brings and use them for some greater good like i don't know what are your thoughts about that I mean, it's complicated. I think the first thing that comes up for me is how so often we center ideas of eating healthfully or even self-care around acquiring things, Mm -hmm. you know, consumer products, whatever it is. I was having this conversation with Crystal Mack, this activist up in Baltimore. Shout out to Crystal Mack. That's my homegirl. It reminds me of this assumption or this misperception that people have that eating or maintaining a a vegan diet is too expensive, right? Mm -hmm. And I think so often when people are imagining how expensive it is, they're thinking about going to Whole Foods and spending exorbitant amounts of money on these like products that are marketed as vegan products. And I think that you can maintain a, a vegan diet for fairly cheaply. Yeah. If you have like fundamental cooking skills, like buying beans and grains and legumes in bulk isn't that expensive, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, you need to factor in, like when we talk about like the cost, what does it mean when you talk about like the cost of making some food from scratch for a mother who's working two and a half jobs because she can't work a, a job that pays a living wage just to like support her family, right? right? Yeah. So that's when something like going to uh, McDonald's and getting a 99 cent burger makes so much sense because people are just 
in survival mode. Mm -hmm. But I just don't want people to feel like they have to go and buy all these fancy products to eat well. You know, what was interesting to me, not so much like new stores that popped up, but seeing like these established markets. And this happened in my neighborhood in Bed-Stuy. There was a Met Foods that was across the street, kind of a catty corner to where the Jollof was, right? Yep, yep. And it was so interesting over that arc of a decade, seeing how that store transformed. Mm -hmm. And we had already talked about this in Be Healthy with the young people because we wanted them to understand how structural racism often plays out and how you could have a chain supermarket and the way that they would like serve populations that were in the outer boroughs in these like mostly black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. And you might find that same store in like Soho and it looks totally different. Yes. (laughs) I mean, the diversity and quality of like bulk items and, you know, like olive oils, like I think it might've been, I don't even know, maybe it was even Med Foods, but it was one in Soho near NYU and they had like 15 different olive oils Mm -hmm. and, you know, bulk grains. But then you go to one in like deep Brooklyn and the fruits and vegetables were rotting. Yep. You could barely find some of the staples you needed. The very same stores that are in the neighborhoods changing, yeah. you know, and come to think of it in that immediate like Halsey, Macon, Patchen area prior to maybe like 2010, there were very few fresh markets in that area, even going as far as like McDonough towards Lewis and Malcolm X, mm-hmm. very few. But all the smaller market stores ended up opening up to become like fresh markets because at one point, the closest grocery store other than that Met Foods was going to Atlantic Plaza to go to Pathmark. Yep. Right. And if you live in Bedside, Pathmark is a trek, especially if you don't have a car. Right. So there weren't many options there, but all of the smaller neighborhood stores that were once boarded up or Mm -hmm. abandoned became fresh fruit markets. Mm -hmm. And it was just shocking. So it was amazing to watch people really take full advantage of the access that it offered. But it's like, you know, this is just as an abusive relationship as living in New York. You know, I love you and I hate you. You know, it's quite a juxtaposition. And I think what, what bothered me is... So it did make me happy that the quality of options that people in the neighborhood had was significantly better. Just like the fresh produce, the difference when I first moved there and then when I moved away, I mean, was markedly different, right? Yeah. Literally, that stuff was the kind that I described earlier, where sometimes fruit would Mm -hmm. be rotting. A lot of the vegetables, you saw that they had been sitting there for weeks on end. They weren't rotating it. And so... I was happy that people had access to that. But then I also saw these specialty food items like the kombuchas Mm -hmm. or like these kimchis and things that I knew were prohibitively expensive for a lot of people who had been living in a neighborhood all their life. You know, they weren't going to spend four dollars on some bottle of some Mm -hmm. kombucha or something. And so it's always this tension that I tried to be aware of. And I, I was very intentional about connecting with my neighbors and people in the neighborhood and getting to know people and it used to make me so sad to see like the new residents come in and just kind of like, I don't know, it was almost like this erasure yes. of the people who had been living there, both in the way that the businesses would be like mostly catering to right. the new population and not that invested in the older folks. And then just to kind of like, um, I don't know, just the way in which a lot of the new folks just didn't even see yeah. 
the black folks and the brown folks and the poor folks who have been living in these neighborhoods for all their lives. And so it's always a complicated relationship with gentrification. I think about how it's happening in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. The exciting thing about living here is that there have been a lot of black and brown folks who recognize all these shifts that are taking place. Yeah but are taking advantage of the capital to build our own businesses and employ our own people and like really invest in the type of economic development that I think a lot of these tech companies and other businesses aren't that invested in. You know, I think about Red Bay Coffee, for example, Kevaconte, and, you know, he's built this company that I think will be a billion-dollar company within a decade. Mm. And he's very intentional about hiring people who've been formerly incarcerated, hiring young people, hiring differently abled people. Mm -hmm. So the type of people that I would see often um, erased in the neighborhoods that I would live in um, that were gentrified, he and others Black entrepreneurs are making a very concerted effort to say, look, no, these are the people that we need to take along with mm-hmm. us as these neighborhoods transform and make sure that we're um, paying them, sure. supporting them, honoring them, and ensuring that they can have a livelihood as the city continues to rise and so many people get left behind. Who are some of the other um, hitters in the Bay Area who are doing that kind of work? Man, I mean, there's Kay Bacante. I feel like he's like a major inspiration for a lot of us. There's Brahma Mahdi, a comrade of mine who's one of the founders of the People's Mm -hmm. Kitchen, the uh, community-based organization. And he had always had this vision of starting a full-service supermarket. So now he has the People's Community Market, which is like a big supermarket, but dedicated to creating space for the people and for community and hiring people from the community and having prices that would allow folks who've been living in West Oakland all their lives to have access to this store and not feel like this is for the new white folks who are moving Mm -hmm. in or whatever. Who else? Who else? I mean, there's um, the sister who owns Pollinate, and I'm blanking on her name. I love her. That's Yolanda Burrell from Pollinate. Yolanda! Yeah! Yes. Yeah, she's so dope. Pollinate. (laughs) I love that name. That's really cute. Yeah. Pollinate is this really dope specialty um, gardening and just whatever your needs are around, like, urban farming, Mm. gardening, the care of your space at um, your home, that's what they specialize in. And so there's so many examples of that. I mean, Kaba's daughter, Jessica, she just opened a bottle shop. So this is a shop where she's like, not only a Black woman-owned bottle Mm -hmm. shop, but they're making very pointed efforts to support Black brewers, Black winemakers, Black people in the spirit world. So I just love this. It's the bay. It's, It's always been this ethic around like, just... You know, I love the Panthers, how they say all power to all people. Mm-hmm. So black power to black people, yellow power to Asian people, red power to Native Americans, as they would say. And and so basically, it's just like, I feel like that spirit continues. And people who have been a part of these oppressed groups see the ways in which we need to continue to like support each other, have these networks, share resources. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's so much money running in the Bay Area because of the tech money. Like there's no scarcity. And I just love that there's that perspective that people are bringing to us, you know, entrepreneurship and and building businesses here. You went to graduate school in New York. You started um, Be Healthy after culinary school. You moved from New York to Oakland. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Yep. In the summer of 2003, this was a couple years after. This was when Be Healthy was off the ground, but you know, we're still kind of in the formative stage. Mm-hmm. I had met this cat, Brahma Mahdi. 
who was the founder of the People's Grocery in Oakland. And mm-hmm. we met at a conference, I think. And we just saw so many parallels in what we were trying to do on different coasts and hit it off. And he said, look, we have this new program we're piloting in the summer. This was like the summer of 2003, when we met in the, that spring. Okay. And they had a program called Collards and Commerce. So he's like, we got this new program, College and Commerce, and it's geared at both teaching young people from West Oakland more about just cooking, Mm -hmm. helping to raise their food IQ and empowering them to be food entrepreneurs. And so he hit me up to um, help direct the program. So I was running Be Healthy, but I also had a fellowship from the Open Society Institute, the Soros Foundation to support that work. And so I I was like, yeah, sure. We're off for the summer. I'm going to move to the Bay Area and I'll do this. So I moved out here and it was so great because at the mm-hmm. time, the Bay was seen as the epicenter for all the exciting food justice activism. Yeah. People definitely traced that lineage of the work that was happening in that moment back to the Black Panthers. And it was just everything from like community gardens to like far left food justice activism. This was the place. And I felt like I wanted to be mm-hmm. here and absorb that energy, learn from the folks who are doing the work on the ground here, talk to some Black Panthers about the work that they had done in the past. So when I moved out here, I was living in Berkeley. And within the first week, I was like, I'm moving here. So yeah, I um, had a ball. I really loved the work that they were doing. And I learned a lot. I think that was the most important thing is that it allowed me to bring a lot of that energy back to the East Coast. And the work that we were doing would be healthy. But it was a hard decision because we were such a young organization Mm -hmm. two years later that it really required me as a founder there still. It wasn't at a point where we could hand it off. And that was just one of those moments when we talk about radical self-care. I had to make a decision about like my kind of commitment to doing this work through an organization that would help improve the food system and taking care of myself and living in a city that I felt really supported me, that I felt was like my spiritual home. I I felt like when I, the reason I felt so strongly about moving here, because I felt like this was the spiritual home Mm -hmm. that I had always been looking for that summer. And so we decided to close down, be healthy. And then I moved out here and I just had to reinvent myself. And um, I don't regret that at all. Uh, I think what we did and be healthy... (laughs) (laughs) neither do we no (laughs) no but even you know the work that we did would be healthy like we and when I say we it was my idea or the idea came through me I should say Mm -hmm. but then there were people in grad school people in culinary school people in the artist community the activist community that I was a part of and I I tapped on my community to help us run this program Right. right So, for example, like we had a little section where we wanted the, the kids to understand the billions of dollars that these multinational food corporations spend marketing the worst foods and the worst beverages to them. Mm-hmm. And how it's no accident that they were eating a, and drinking a lot of these foods because, you know, they're t- being targeted. Yeah. Right. And it was almost we talked about it as a form of psychic violence where every day they had to deal with these billboards, ads, jingles, pop ups, mm. whatever, telling them what to eat and drink. Yeah. And so. So what we uh, wanted to do was show them how they can have agency to be media makers. Mm -hmm. And so we brought in friends from corporate marketing, from the fine art world, from street art. And then we did workshops on them creating their own messages about eating and living healthfully. And they took that back to their schools and they took that back to their faith communities. And so it was definitely a communal effort. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the core team, we had people like Latham Thomas, who was the head of our Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies project. And now she has this whole, like Mama Glow is this brand that she yes. has. And she's like doing doula trainings for young women from around the country. She's like really become a leader in pre and postnatal health of Black women. Sure. 
Elizabeth Johnson is another woman running a program for us. And now she's in DC doing all this amazing work. So I feel like that was just a launching pad for so many other things that yeah. were meant to happen. To Extensions happen. of that work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's amazing. It must feel really good to have been an integral part of like a springboard organization that really helped spearhead people who are also passionate about our health and our wealth. No doubt. That must be a good feeling. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the day where she chef gives me that that moment where I'm like, oh, this all came to be because someone felt inspired. I hope that day comes. I think that day is happening. You probably just don't know about it, but it's now. <laughs> it could be. It could be. You know, I'm a true cook. I'm a heads down, like get the work done type of person. I'm I'm not ever looking for the accolades, you know. Mm-hmm. I never even thought about that until somebody brought it up to me the other day. Like, have you ever won an award for anything? And I was like, yeah. Hmm. No, actually, I don't I don't think I ever have. I never even thought about mm, it, you mm. know? Like, I don't do the work for the reward. I work for the people, Yeah, you know? I, I work you. for the people. I think there's a part of me that's always had a, a... There's been a complicated relationship with, like, accolades and praise. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, I don't live for that. I feel similarly. It's like, I'm here to do the work. I'm here to serve community. And I understand how the world works. And I know that something like having James Beard, award-winning chef by my name, will open up doors and give me more of a social capital, give me more access to do the things that I want to do. I'm often thinking about those things and just really reminding myself to stay grounded, to not get caught up in Mm -hmm. ego. And remember, that's his definition. That's just like things coming from the outside. And what really matters is just like the connection I have with um, spirit and my ancestors and doing this work that's meaningful. I would imagine, though, that stepping into your work at the Moat for, with the residency is a reward of sorts. You get to follow in the tradition of telling stories, teaching, being a griot of sorts, as we can call you because you have five in a pending book, <laughs> right? So I think that is definitely a thing. I know they don't have a kitchen, so I won't even ask about that. (laughs) (laughs) We won't even touch that. Just tell me what you've enjoyed about the job or have there been challenges? Mm. What's it been like in that position for you? You know, honestly, my position as chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora has been the most fulfilling work that I've done. And in 2015, Linda Harrison, the former executive director, contacted me because I had a residency. I was an artist in residence for Grace Cathedral, which is a church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And as a part of my residency, I created public programming, mm-hmm. both for the, the faith community and the, the wider Bay Area public. So I was doing things like dinners and panel discussions and intimate conversations with authors. Linda was a member of the church and she was like, oh, I guess she had this kind of epiphanal moment where she was like, we need to be using this fine art museum as a platform to talk about these range of issues that may not necessarily have anything to do with fine art, but have stuff to do with the community. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about Moad in a city such as San Francisco that has had such a rapidly dwindling population of Black people, Mm, right? Over a decade ago, the population of Black folks in San Francisco was a little over 13%. And because of our Mm -hmm. migration over the past decade, it's hovering over 3% now. That's Huge. That's a lot of Black folks that's left that city. And so an institution like MOAD, I mean, I think is vitally important in a city just to to plant the pole and say, Mm -hmm. we're here. We exist. 
as white as this city seems, like black people yeah. are here, we've been here. It was the will and labor of black people that even like brought this museum to life. And so to be connected to that legacy has been amazing. But I just have used my platform, my privilege, my position to elevate people and to celebrate mm-hmm. folks that may not necessarily get that support and celebration. Like the first event that I did, my first program, and it was very intentional, was Black Women, Food and Power. That was our first program. From there, we did a dinner uh, celebrating our brother Michael Twitty's work, where we made his recipes and he's in conversation with um, Stephen Satterfield. I did a program, Black Queer Food, celebrating many of the folks in the food world I identify as queer and elevating them and giving them space to talk about the issues that are important to them. I want to kind of talk about what we call the wall slide moment, right? So anytime Mm. you're sliding down a wall, odds are the the stuff has hit the fan. You're having a moment. We all have it, right? And we go to the Mm walk-in to have said moment. And if there have been moments in your career, your personal life that have broken you down, but also shaped you, I would love to hear about that. The first one that I thought about when you said that was when I was shopping for a publisher for Vegan Soul Kitchen. Because, you know, I did the book with Anna LaPay before that. So that was a book I co-authored. So we co-authored Grub. And it was crazy because we got a ridiculous advance. Like, that was our first book. And whatever, I don't have any problem. I think it's good to be transparent about numbers sometimes. Mm -hmm. We got a $75,000 advance for that book, right? Which, for me, was crazy as a first-time author. Now, you know, she had co-written a book with her mother and... Her mother is Frances Moore LePay and is this big stature in the food world. So she hooked us up with the, with the agent who could get us that number. Right. But then when I was shopping my solo book, Vegan So Kitchen, we shopped it around to like 12 publishers and 10 of them outright said, mm. no, this is ridiculous. I mean, that was pretty much the energy that came back. Like you're cutting up the pie too thinly. <laughs> black folks, veganism, like those are, it's oxymoronic. Do black people even eat vegetables? You know, it was Whoa. like the type of weird like responses we got from yeah. folks. And then one publisher was like, we, yeah, we want to do a book with you, but not that one. Mm. And then there was a publisher who bought it and got it and saw the vision. And when I think back on that period, it was hard. It made me doubt myself. It made me doubt my vision. Mm-hmm. And I always reflect on that. And I mentor a lot of younger authors because I feel like I want to pay it forward. I had mentors and people who supported me and have helped me get to this point. And I'm doing that for other people, especially around writing, because it could be such an esoteric process. And how do you get an agent? And you know, what do you do? How do you negotiate monies and all that? So I'm, I'm really here for a lot of younger budding authors around that. And what I always remind people of is that We, as the creatives, the people on the ground doing the work, we have the vision. Mm -hmm. We know what's going to be like the zeitgeist a decade from now. And these publishing companies, like, even if you have great, amazing editor who gets the vision, a lot of times the people who are making the decision are the the people who are crunching the numbers. And they're like, is there a market for this? Are we going to have enough money to people to buy this in order for us to make the money back? And if not, then we're going to pass. But here's the thing. As a writer, as I'm sure you know, you signed a contract and then that book will probably come out two years from yeah. now. So you're not just thinking about like what 
is the moment now. What's going to be the zeitgeist when this book is published? And I knew everything that we see now, where you have a sweet potato soul, you have like innumerable Afro-vegan blogs, Black folks reclaiming this legacy of us eating vegetable centric diet. I knew it. And I just, I say all that to say that we Mm -hmm. know it. We as the creative people, we as the folks on the ground doing the work, we have that vision and we can't allow these companies and these numbers crunchers to sway us from that vision and make us insecure about what we know deep down inside. And I think a lot of times when you hear the no's, when you hear, uh... I don't know if this is a good project or I don't know if this is going to sell. Sometimes you just got to like stick to it until you find the person or the company who's going to see the vision yeah. for you and then go for that. So just wanted to wow. share that. I think it's important for people. To I'm know. so glad that you brought that up as both your wall slide and also as just a little bit of um, support and advice to young authors, because we have a segment in the walk-in that's called a moment in the walk-in. A moment in the walk-in. So this is where one of our listeners writes in for advice, either professional or personal for our guests, which Mm. today is you. You are our lucky participant to get to answer today's letter. My letter today is from Terrell in Raleigh. What's up, Terrell? What's up, Terrell? Terrell says, hi, Brian. I am a young culinarian and I look to the future and I see myself writing books, but I don't know that I am as strong a writer as I would like to be for that venture. Can Mm. you give me some advice on ways that I can strengthen my writing? Mm. That's a great question. And I'm sure you could chime in on this because what I want budding cookbook authors to know is that recipe writing is a craft. It is very specific and I encourage people to, because I've met a lot of people who are brilliant in the kitchen, but they don't know how to write recipes. First of all, I would say get some really quality cookbooks, things like Joy of Cooking, things like America's Text Kitchen, you know, like trusted sources where you can just see how recipes are written and start practicing how to do that. Because I think it's like anything else. The more you practice it, the more you do it, the more it improves your craft. And, you know, I don't think there's one perfect time to do something. I think you learn by doing. Mm -hmm. I am a much better writer I'm a much better recipe writer. I'm a much better cookbook author now on my fifth book than I was on my first and second book. And even I look back on some of those books and cringe, like, oh my God, that's such a poorly written recipe. Or what was I thinking? How did I put those flavors (laughs) together? How did this recipe make the book? And I just think that sometimes you just got to do it and you can't get caught up in it being perfect. You can't get Mm -hmm. caught up in what the outside world, you know, some, you're going to look back and cringe on it, but guess what? Every time you do it, you're going to get better. So I'm not ashamed of my books. I'm like, you know what? They're not perfect. There are things about them that I hate. And it's just like, you're actually just like witnessing someone publicly growing and learning yes. and becoming better at their craft. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just what it's about. It's just like doing the work, you know? I mean, look, I think I'm a great cookbook writer. I think I'm an okay chef, right? In terms of like being in the kitchen, but it's because that's not my practice. Yes. The people who I know who are the dopest chefs, they're cooking every day. Mm -hmm. Even when they don't want to be cooking, they're cooking because they just like, that's where their passion is. That's not really my passion. I like writing cookbooks and I like testing recipes 
to help people feed themselves and gain the foundational skills to be good in the kitchen and be able to freestyle and not have to use a cookbook. Mm -hmm. But, you know, whatever it is that you want to improve, just do it. Yeah. Just do it. And look for mentors, too. I think that's a big thing. If you can find people to help mentor you, and, and I'll offer myself up. If you want to be in touch, email me through my website. And if you have like something that you just want advice on, I'm happy to take a look and give quick feedback. Um, I'm not going to be able to do a, like a close reading of your essay and do a line by line copy editing. But, you know, um, right. I think it's important that we connect with mentors and elders who've done the rodeo and who can give advice. And that's why as much as I can, I try to be accessible in that way. And I know sometimes it's hard to really be out there like that, but I um, am trying to figure out that balance. So, Well, there you have it, Terrell. That was like not only some top of the line advice you got, but a potentially a mentor if you reach out. So, and <laughs> you're right. 100% Brian, doing things repeatedly is really what gives the best results. When I look at season, my season one at America's Test Kitchen, it mm. is cringe worthy from the <laughs> hair to the presentation, every single bit of it. But, you know, when I look at something I did like last season or the season, but maybe the season before, but definitely at least last season, I'm like, I've grown, you know, like mm. I feel really comfortable in front of the camera and I, do like talking about food and I do like talking to people. I'm I'm still evolving. I'm learning that this is why I call myself the culinary Oprah because I love having conversations with people. I'm a sociologist. I was a social worker for mm. seven years before I became a chef. And that, that is still in my blood. You know, like I love mm. talking about people and I love just talking about how they live, how they struggle, how they overcome, how they survive, and, you know, their joy. Black joy is, like, one of my favorite topics right now, you know? Mm -hmm. And you will learn what really actually works for you once you put pen to paper, like, no pun intended. You know, yep. once you start actually doing the work, you'll either realize this cookbook writing is not for you or developing is for you. You'll find yourself, but you do have to be mm -hmm. forward in motion. That's 100% mm -hmm. true. you got to do something to find out who you are. You've yep. got to do it. Yeah. Ashe. Totally Ashe. <laughs> If you have a young creative in your life who could benefit from Brian's mentorship, you can reach out to him through his website. That's bryant-terry.com. You should also be sure to pick up a copy of his newest book, Vegetable Kingdom. It's full of beautiful, inspiring recipes that make eating plant-based feel like a treat. You can also follow Brian on Instagram at bryantterry to keep up with all the latest. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caroline Rickard. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Hen Margolis, 
and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. We might have to do a part two to this podcast. This is this Carolina is <laughs> going to be our first part two. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.